Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is Episode 12, Zapruder, Part 4. In this episode, we continue the story of the Zapruder film and what happened with the film right after the assassination occurs. The history of the Zapruder film and its significance in the history of the JFK assassination cannot be overestimated. In many ways, it's required reading for any serious assassination researcher to learn about the film's technical contribution to seeking the truth in the case. But the story of the film itself is also a fascinating wander. At no time in a 20th century crime has a piece of evidence been so front and center in American history. The film has its own unique wander in history spanning over a 35-year period. And the controversy around its wander would epitomize many social, legal, ethical, and other issues that would spring into our American consciousness after the events of the 60s. For that reason, I'm going to give the film its own dedicated wander and storytell for the next three episodes. Episodes 12, 13, and 14 are all about the Zapruder film, and I hope you enjoy this part of our journey as we finish up this part of the series on Zapruder. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. Undoubtedly, on Friday, November 22nd, babies were born. But it would still be one of those days for the American public, indeed the world, that will forever be burned in history as horrific. Made famous for the wrong reasons. By now, the world knew that the president was dead, and most people heard a sketchy outline of what had happened in the plaza. It was left, by God's will, to only a few that they would actually bear witness to the gruesome act itself. The men, women, and even some children in Dealey Plaza that day, and those at Parkland Hospital, would see the most, and bear the most. Others would feel a lesser but still strong connection to the moment. Those on the nearby streets of Dallas, who had just seen the President and the First Lady drive by and deliver that warm smile and that wave of acknowledgement back. Their president and his beautiful wife had just looked them in the eye and given a gift, 
a sliver of real momentary connection. A moment of highest honor and pride for ordinary citizens of Dallas. That burst of pride never made its way back to the dinner table that night. It was simply erased by the unthinkable. And it happened just a few minutes later and a few streets away. Indeed, the pride had turned to shame and silence for most. And the swarm of reporters and law enforcement personnel that began to sort things out, reliving the events over and over as witnesses told their own sad story, each just a variation of a story with the same ending. And then finally, as Friday night wound down, the pure chaos that still existed at the police station that really was a dangerous elixir of curiosity, anger, and madness, as this suspect named Lee Harvey Oswald was taken into custody and the world began to get to know more about this curious man with a curious background. It would meet the definition of surreal, whether you were knee-deep in it or just watching it continue to unfold on a TV that was perched in a merchant's window thousands of miles away in Manhattan. Your tears were real wherever you were. Your shattered dreams and your lost innocence were the result of a crime committed, in a vicarious way, perpetrated on you as well, and yet you had no place as an American to report your own loss. That would be between you and your friends, your loved ones, and the prayers you asked your God to answer in that moment and on that day. One of the most frightening that America has ever experienced, all of us together. Thanks to the wonders of the 20th century, this attack was shared almost simultaneously with the public in a way that was more welding than even Pearl Harbor. The enemy was clear on that day in 1941, and we could all focus our anger in one direction. This day in 1963 in Dallas would draw out the search for similar thoughts from officials in high places and hasten the need to quickly deliver to the country the villain that had done this dastardly deed. A clear narrative to explain and calm the public is what they decided we would need. For the collective country was holding its breath and the citizens could only hold it for so long before they heard the answer. Before Friday night had come to an end, the beleaguered Zapruder had gotten back to his house after 10 o'clock. The sheer adrenaline and trauma of the day's events were taking their toll. Shortly after 10.30, a knock on the door occurred, and it was a motley group of folks from the Saturday Evening Post. They offered Zapruder $10,000 for the film. He turned it down. The day's news of the assassination spread quickly throughout the nation, and soon Richard Stolle would hear of it. 
Stolle, at the time, was heading up the West Coast Operations of Life magazine, and he was located in Beverly Hills, California. When the news came, Stolle knew that he needed to get to Dallas immediately, and so he booked a flight. He would arrive in Dallas later that afternoon. Publications like Life have folks monitoring activity in many major cities, and once Stolle arrived in Dallas that afternoon, he made contact with one of them. The young lady had heard a rumor that a man with a last name starting with Z had a film of the assassination. They went to work, pouring through the Dallas phone book, and eventually deduced that it must have been Zapruder. Around 11 o'clock that night, Richard called Zapruder's house, and they engaged in a polite but brief conversation, and Zapruder confirmed that he still had the film. Stolle was hoping that he could get to the film that night, before the inevitable rush that might occur the next day, as word continued to leak out about the film's existence. But Zapruder was too tired, and he also knew that there would soon be a long line of folks interested in buying the film. It would probably happen faster than he could handle. So he simply declined Stolle's request to see the film and told him to be at Zapruder's office at the Dow Tex building at 9 o'clock the next morning on Saturday. Stolle was a newsman, and he knew that this was a very fluid circumstance with the film. He got himself up early Saturday morning and dressed neatly in a suit and headed over to Zapruder's office. He arrived at 8 a.m., an hour early. Zapruder wasn't happy about that. He already had agreed to show the film to some Secret Service agents, and that showing was already underway. Regardless, he decided to invite Stolle to join them. Soon, there was a throng of newsmen and reporters that made their way to Zapruder's office. You name it, and they seemed to be there. The Associated Press was there. The United Press International. Movie Tone was there. Movie Tone was famous for producing news films during World War II, and a host of other members of the press were there as well. Apparently, though, there was no TV networks represented that morning, which seems strange to me. After finishing the preview of the film for the Secret Service agents, Zapruder's attention then turned to letting the gathering of reporters view the film, slowly allowing everyone who had showed up to get a good look at it. He projected it up against the wall of his office. Not a perfect viewing experience, but the translation was clear enough to shock all those in the room. Stolle was well-coiffed and well-dressed that day, and his appearance clearly stuck out from the rest of the ragtag news group that was there. It was noticeable to Zapruder, and it made an impression upon him. In order to accommodate all attendees that morning and to satisfy the insatiable need to see it again, Zapruder replayed the film four times. In the middle of all of this, Stelly would step out of Zapruder's private office where the movie was being shown and he started up a conversation with Zapruder's secretary. Lillian Rogers was the same person that had encouraged Zapruder to go back home yesterday after he had forgotten his camera. Without Lillian, there may never have been a Zapruder film. That conversation was noticeable to Zapruder as he took a break between showings and he acknowledged it kindly in a few words to Stolle. Stolle used this exchange as an opportunity to ask Zapruder if they could have a few minutes alone and talk privately about the circumstance. Zapruder was taken by Stolle, and he agreed to it, and that was much to the chagrin of the rest of the clamoring news crowd. Zapruder announced that he was going to spend a few minutes first with a representative from Life, since they were the first to contact him. 
The two men stepped away and began what was to essentially become the first moments of a negotiation to purchase the film from Zapruder. Stolle initially offered $15,000, and it's rumored that Zapruder simply smiled at him in this moment, in the way that you do when you are in a negotiation. The man from life knew that the price was going to have to go higher, but he needed approval to go over that price, and he told Zapruder so. Zapruder remained patient while Stolle got approval from his superiors over the phone, and a few minutes later, after more discussion and negotiation, they settled on $50,000 for the worldwide print media rights associated with the images contained in the film. What was not included for that price was the movie rights. Zapruder was going to retain those himself for the moment. In order to allow life to include those pictures in its upcoming edition of the magazine, which was to be published on the 29th of November, Zapruder also agreed not to release the film before that date. The deal was made. For the consideration received, Zapruder would hand over the original film and the one duplicate copy that he had not given to Agent Phillips. He would also include all of the affidavits that he had obtained the day before from the two processing plants, both from Kodak and Jameson. Stolle was electrified. In less than 24 hours after the assassination, he would now have in his possession the only known film depiction of the entire shooting and assassination, and life now had it exclusively. Zapruder helped him slip out the back of his office to avoid the fray that was continuing at Jennifer Jr.'s that day. Stolle got the original film back to Chicago as soon as possible to begin the urgent process of trying to incorporate these images into the November 29th edition of Life. In the blink of an eye, the film was gone and out of Zapruder's possession. The one duplicate copy of the film that came with the deal was going directly to Life's corporate headquarters in New York. The images on that second copy would affect the fate of the film for years to come. On Sunday morning, Life's publisher, C.D. Jackson, got up and headed to the office in New York. When he got there, he would see a projection of the film firsthand, and it was absolutely shocking to him. So shocking, in fact, particularly the headshot sequence, that he made up his mind right there and then that there had to be some control over the distribution of the movie and this particular image of the headshot, at least for a while anyway. The showing of these images should be paused from the public's view. That would allow the country to settle into some calm first before it was shown more widely. Emotions were just too raw and too high at the moment. There was only one problem with that conclusion. Life did not own the movie rights to the film. The day before, they had purchased only the print media rights of the images. Zapruder still owned the movie rights. As a result of this Sunday morning showing at Time Life headquarters in New York, Jackson would then set in motion a process that began later that Sunday to attempt to acquire the movie rights from Zapruder. Jackson called Stolle and authorized him to start the conversation with Zapruder to obtain the movie rights. Stolle understood and made the call to Zapruder to begin, hopefully, what was to be a second round of negotiations. Meanwhile, Jackson himself organized and conducted additional senior executive meetings at Life on Monday morning in New York. By Monday afternoon, Life was in a position to authorize Stolle to go back and negotiate the purchase of all remaining movie rights to the film. He had a number. 
The negotiations with Zapruder were set and they were commenced immediately with the attorneys involved. The deal was a pretty straightforward one. Zapruder would receive a total of $150,000 to be paid in equal $25,000 annual installments each year over a six-year period with the first installment immediately due and then five more due, one on each January 3rd through the year 1968. In addition to the $150,000, Zapruder would be entitled to one half of all the gross receipts derived from the commercialization of the film by life in virtually any form of transaction. I won't go into the exact language used, but it was well-defined contract language, and for my lawyer and finance friends listening to the podcast, it was clear that Zapruder had good legal representation and knew his numbers. In addition, Life would actually have to produce a certified audit annually to support the 50% payment that would be due and payable to Zapruder each year related to the gross receipts generated by Life in their commercialization of the film. Zapruder was very concerned about ensuring that the use of the film was not done in a way that would be viewed negatively by the public at large. I suspect he may have even been concerned at that moment about the Kennedy family too and their potential views on its use. As a result, there was a provision requiring life to present any film to the public, quote, in a manner consistent with good taste and dignity. It was a well-intentioned provision of the agreement and Zapruder was confident that an outfit like Life had a news culture that would adhere to that covenant. To Zapruder's credit, to the day he died, that was a concern to him. Born out of a sense of civility, it would, in his own mind, remain an important consideration. But at the same time, there was a provision in the agreement that Life must use its best business judgment for the production of gross receipts. It was but one more example of where Zapruder was attempting to balance his own personal beliefs around use of the film in a tasteful way, but without sacrificing the potential for profit. One other interesting circumstance arose during the negotiation that was core to the ethical concerns around commercializing the film. Zapruder had an understandable worry that receiving such a large sum of money left open the possibility that he would be viewed as a person who was profiting off the murder of the president. Moreover, Zapruder was a member of the Jewish faith, and he was particularly concerned that there would be a proportionately greater level of criticism heaped upon him because he was a Jew. For this reason, he got agreement with life to keep the total value of the contract undisclosed at that moment. This discussion sparked more thought in the midst of the negotiation. One of the attorneys involved, mindful of this concern, suggested that Zapruder donate the initial payment to the fund that had now been set up for J.D. Tippett's widow. Tippett, as you recall, was the Dallas Police Department officer that was slain by Oswald on the day of the assassination. Zapruder liked the idea, and he agreed. Incidentally, this was parlayed into a somewhat clever public relations move as well for the benefit of Zapruder. The $25,000 donation certainly was generous in its own right, but it was portrayed in a way that made it sound as if Zapruder had donated the entire amount of the contract to the Fireman's Fund that had been set up for Tippett's widow. 
That was hardly the case. Zapruder was going to profit handsomely from the film for a long time to come. And the economics of those transactions, some of them still yet to come, would not be revealed to the American public for many years. By Monday evening, November 25th, Life was the owner of the film, and Zapruder, a business owner already, had become substantially wealthier overnight. That night, Zapruder would pause and think back on the events that had unfolded over the last several days. And as daylight had come to Dallas that Monday morning, it would most certainly be followed by the darkness of the night. As much as the world stood still around 12.35 Friday afternoon, it would begin to get on with things now. The business of burying the president, publishing the pictures, crying in private, mostly, but sometimes in public, and watching the sun go down and come back, as always, and just letting the sorrow sort itself out, as it always seems to do. It is stunning, but back in 1963, Texas had no criminal statutes or laws regarding the retention of evidence in a criminal case. In so many ways, the world was a different place back then, and at least at that moment, the general societal view was not a natural pivot to the idea that the Zapruder film was evidence and should be confiscated, period. It would, however, over the next 35 years, spark a tremendous social, ethical, and legal debate over the matter. Despite the laissez-faire view of this topic at the time in our American culture at large, critics immediately attacked it. This was a national tragedy, for God's sake, and wasn't every citizen in the nation entitled to see it? Wasn't this a social abuse by a large, highly capitalized corporation controlling something of dire national significance? How could that be? The critical diatribe was here to stay. Well, life's purchase was certainly done initially to commercialize the images, but the restrictions on it that came with Zapruder's negotiation certainly made it more complicated, and this was just the beginning of it. Life was already finalized to print its next edition, which was coming out on November 29th. Life had a massive circulation back then, and the work for each periodical had to be done well in advance. Once the materials were gathered, they were delivered to the R.R. Donnelly Company in Chicago. That name may sound familiar to you. Over the years, they became a principal printer and publisher of books as well. In Chicago, they had a massive physical printing plant that could handle the massive task of producing each edition of Life magazine. Life was such a large customer for R.R. Donnelly that Life had its own office on the premises of the printer. It really was a stop-the-presses moment for the magazine. Already, they had begun printing magazines for the 29th, and over 200,000 copies were in inventory and ready to be shipped. But this story of the Kennedy assassination had to be included, so they were all going to be scrapped. And now that Life had the Zapruder film, it was imperative to get some of those images into this edition of the magazine. Life immediately flew a special editorial team to Chicago to work right there at the printer's office. There wasn't much time. They were going to have to sort through the images in the Zapruder film and quickly make a decision on which images were acceptable and to be included and then re-edit the life issue set for the 29th. There was another complication too. 
including color photographs in the magazine, was a complicated element associated with a large-scale printing process. They were running out of time. Life decided that it would only be possible in the time that was left before publication to include black and white photographs. They would be working around the clock to rejigger the magazine and include these graphic images along with a story. One of the first things that was necessary once the film reached Chicago was to get individual prints made of the individual frames. This would allow the editorial team to sort through what was there, apply the publication limitations that were in the contract, and ultimately determine what would be best to include in the magazine on the 29th. The film was hand-delivered to a technician who began the work of printing the stills. As luck or neglect would have it, they handed this task to a relatively young and inexperienced photo technician. The time constraints were enormous, and there was pressure on everyone. Unfortunately, in the middle of getting the individual frames printed, the film technician damaged several frames of the film. Frames 207 through 212 were damaged, and the general description of the damage is that they were split down the middle during some part of the process associated with reproducing the individual still frame pictures. In the dash to get the work done, these frames were completely removed from the original film. That removal would later become a source of controversy, particularly with conspiracy theorists. Finally, the work was done. Life issued one of the most iconic editions of its magazine on November 29, 1963, carrying in black and white the first images of the assassination for all the world to see. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.